If you've got a Bible with you, would you turn to Psalm 1 again, please? So if you open your Bible in the middle, you will probably be in Psalms. And if you could turn to Psalm 1. Psalm 1. First one begins, blessed is the man. In other words, happy is the person. The word here for blessed is the word used for happy in the Bible. Happy is the person. Or more loosely, it could be translated, here is the desirable life. In other words, the book of Psalms begins with something we're all interested in. Happiness. What is the life that has something to be happy about? What is the desirable life? But Psalm 1 tells us our society has got this totally wrong. All the things, as we saw last week, that our society tells us, here's the happy life, just don't appear in Psalm 1. Here's a radically different message about who has the happy life. Psalm 1 gives us a contrast. It takes two people and it pictures them like this. Two seeds in a field. Imagine two seeds in a field. And after two months, one has grown considerably and the other is just a tiny shoot. Another month later, and that first one is towering over the other one, which is still just a tiny shoot. But that bigger one is wheat. And in a month or two's time, it will be cut down and most of it is chaff, which will just be blown away because it's rubbish, unwanted. That tiny shoot, it came out of an acorn and it's going to grow into an oak tree and it's going to grow strong and last for hundreds of years. Psalm 1 says there are people who may look impressive, but they will be cut down in God's judgment. There are people who may look unimpressive, but they are going to live forever with God. So last Sunday evening, we looked through the psalm as a whole, and it was all about persuading us to believe Psalm 1 about who is the blessed man. Psalm 1, last week we didn't go into all the details because I just wanted to persuade us to believe who it says is the blessed person. Because I think often we still need a lot of persuading of that. Well, I find that I do. This evening is about being the blessed person. Well, actually, again, I found I'm not going to manage to cover it all, but I, I don't think we'll continue it next week. We'll see how we get on this week. What we're going to do is see what verse 1 and verse 2 tell us the blessed person is like. See what verse 1 and 2 tell us we need to be like. But before that, there's something else we need. So we're going to begin with this. First of all, branches in the tree. You'll see what that means in a few minutes. Branches in the tree, first of all. Now, How do we get from Psalm 1 to us? We read Psalm 1 a few minutes ago. How do we get from that to us? Our default tends to be read the Bible and then think, well, now that's supposed to be me. Is it me? Does it look like me? But that's the wrong default. Our default should be like this. The Old Testament is all looking forward to a man. It's all pointing forward to a man. 
And as we read the Old Testament, we should always be looking out for that man. God promised him right back in Genesis 3, and he kept promising him. And the Old Testament keeps picturing him and pointing to him. And so when we get to Psalm 1, we should, when we read, blessed is the man, our default should be, ah, is it that man that God promised? Last Sunday, we went through Psalm 1 and asked, could this be the man God promised, the Messiah, Jesus? And we found the answer was yes. We found him in every verse here. We found Psalm 1 is all about him. I'll just give one example, because we did this last week, and I can't just go over all of last week again. Just give one example. Years ago, I preached Psalm 1 here at Hollywell, right back at the start of my time here. And afterwards, a perceptive person asked me, what does it mean at the end of verse 3 when it says, whatever he does prospers? Whatever he does prospers. Everything he does prospers. And I was stumped. I thought, oh dear, the new minister's shown up. He doesn't know the answers. Because I didn't know the answer. Everything he does prospers. That's not true, is it really, of anyone? But I think I know the answer now. A bit too late. It's about ten years after I was asked the question. I think I know the answer now. The answer is this. The psalm is first about Jesus. It's first about Jesus. Everything he does prospers. He saves all his people. Hebrews says he saves them, I like the old translation, to the uttermost. It's got this sense of just to eternity and in every way. Everything he does prospers. He's never tried to do something and it's failed or just half worked. It all prospers. You see, the psalm is first about him. And then it's true for us insofar as anything we do is in Christ. See that? It's first about Jesus, and then it's true for us insofar as anything we do is in Christ, relying on Christ, empowered by Christ. That will prosper. The things we do in our own strength and that are nothing to do with him, they won't prosper. Now, that starts to answer, how do we get from Psalm 1 to us? Psalm 1 is first about Jesus. He is, verse 3, the tree, lasting and fruitful. But Jesus took that picture and he adapted it. Do you know how Jesus took that picture of the tree and adapted it? It's in John 15, by the way. He said he's this sort of tree, a vine. He is the true vine. And those who are trusting him and relying on him are like branches in the vine. And that is how we get from Psalm 1 to us. The way to be the blessed person of Psalm 1, the way to be the righteous person of Psalm 1, is to be a branch in the vine. Jesus is the vine and you've got to be a branch in the vine. You've got to belong to Jesus. You've got to be depending on him. You've got to be one with him before you can live the life described in Psalm 1. Before you can have the blessed, the desirable life. Are you in Jesus? The Bible has this great picture of these branches of just like wild trees that didn't produce any good fruit, just produced thorns being taken and grafted in. That is 
when you take a good tree and you cut a notch in it. This is a bit of gardening for you children. You cut a notch in it and you put another branch in and you bind it up and it starts to become part of that good tree. And the Bible says that's a picture of becoming a Christian. God takes us and he joins us to Jesus and his spirit works in us. That has to come first before you can be in Psalm 1, at least before you can be the blessed person in Psalm 1. Now, if you're a branch in Jesus, you'll bear his fruit. So secondly, let's look at this. Second thing, the branch, we've looked at the branch. Uh, you've got to be a branch in the vine, in the tree. Secondly, let's look at the tree's character and fruit. Now, the character of Jesus and the fruit we'll bear if we're like him, that's a massive subject. We're just going to take one part, the pattern in verse 1. That's all for this evening, the pattern in verse 1. I'll read it to you again. Verse 1, blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of mockers. Many people have pointed out there is a progression in verse 1. Or maybe we should say a regression, it goes downhill. Anyway, it goes somewhere like this. Taking in the counsel of the wicked leads to living in the way of sinners, leads to identifying with the mockers. Or to put it in other words, it goes from thoughts, do you see the counsel of the wicked, to actions, see the way of sinners, to identity, see sitting with the mockers. That means you're identifying with them, you belong to them. Or to put it a third way, if it helps you to have a third way of putting it, it goes from beliefs to behaviour to belonging. Beliefs, you follow the beliefs of the counsel of the wicked. Behaviour, you stand in the way of sinners and you behave like them. Belonging, you sit in the seat of the mockers, you belong with them now. Beliefs to behaviour to belonging. There's a progression or a regression. Now, one of the main things I want to persuade you this evening is we've got to stop this progression early. We've got to stop this progression at its start, at the point of whose counsel do we listen to? It's going to be very hard work trying to stop it later on when you've got towards the end of the verse. We've got to stop it early. Here's an example. In the Cotswolds, there is a trickle of water. And I suppose if you had a cement mixer and a lot of energy and you knew what you were doing, I expect you could stop that trickle of water in the Cotswolds. By the time it gets, that trickle of water gets to Windsor, and it is called the River Thames, I think however hard you work with your cement mixer, you are not going to stop it. I expect you agree. By the time it's passing Dartford, yeah, can you imagine how many cement mixers full you're going to have to throw in there and you'll still be hopeless? You've got to stop it early. Think of this verse as like that. Think of there being a stream flowing through this verse and it powers up as it goes along. You've got to stop it early. To avoid walking in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of mockers, we've got to start upstream. Making sure we're not taking in the counsel of the wicked. And do remember this, the counsel of the wicked doesn't normally go like this. 
Come with me later this evening. We're going to tie up a granny and rob her house. Okay, that may occasionally happen, but that's not normally what the counsel of the wicked is like. It's normally much more subtle. It's our society continually giving us messages about what the blessed life is. They might even use the word blessed, or they might just say happy or desirable, or they might not even use those words, but just through the films you watch and the books you read and the conversations you have, and just about Well, unless you cut yourself off from all social interactions, we are continually getting the message, here's what life's about. Here's the desirable life. And we've got to, well, we can't actually avoid all of that influence unless you go and live in a cave somewhere, but I suspect you'd still come under the influence. But we've got to be aware of it and on our guard against it. Because if we're not dealing with the stream there, well, by the time it's like the River Thames going through Windsor, I don't think you've got much chance. Let me give you some examples. I've got three examples. They're all made up people. But I'm sure you'll recognise that that they all happen in real life. I've just made up the names. Oliver has seen in his parents' lives that the blessed life is one with plenty of money and a nice house, and an expensive car. He's seen that. He sees what they put their effort into. He sees what matters to them. Of course, parents, you know, don't you? Your children see what matters to you. And he's seen that matters to them. And he's picked up. That's the blessed life. Yes, his parents go to church, and they teach him the Bible, and he even knows the answer to the first question in the Westminster Catechism. He knows the chief purpose of humans is to glorify God and enjoy them forever. And he could quote that, and he'd probably mean it. But what has really seeped into him from his parents' example is what is really desirable is possessions and the things money can buy. Oliver grows up and he goes to university and then he gets a job in finance. And he finds that his firm expects him to do dishonest things. And he finds that the way to make a lot of money is take advantage of poor people, lend them money that they can't really afford and charge them 50% interest. If you think this is just ridiculous, I saw an advert the other day for 50% interest for these loans for people who really have little money. Now, yes, Oliver gets a bit troubled about this and he gets some twinges of conscience. But those twinges of conscience are just too weak compared with this. The desirable life is one with plenty of money. And that just flattens the twinges of conscience. Here's the second example. Ella has taken in the message from when she used to be at school and from films that she watches and from conversations she has in her, spare, uh, in her workplace, she's taken in the message, life is about achieving her dreams. And it's all about the self-fulfillment of putting her gifts into practice in, in a way that society values and esteems and rewards. So when she finds herself unexpectedly pregnant at a time that is really awkward for her career, maybe even threatening to her career. It's very hard to tell her that eight-week-old fetus in you is a human made in God's image. 
And it's wrong to abort it. It's easy for her to persuade herself. That's rather theoretical. And that's really rather hard line. And it's fine to have that abortion. Because not to just clashes so strongly with, well, everything she believes about, well, her whole approach to what life is all about. Here's a third example. It has seeped into Lauren without her even realising. She couldn't articulate it, she doesn't even realise, but it has seeped into her that the desirable life is be yourself. Our society doesn't often use the phrase be yourself, but it's all the time telling us be yourself. And, And it seeped into her that the real you is who you feel yourself to be. And it should be expressed. Don't repress how you feel. You can't be fulfilled without expressing the real you. When Lauren reaches teenage years, she starts to find that she is sexually attracted to other girls. And when she talks to her parents about this, oh, no, 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 you can't express that, they tell her. No, you shouldn't express that. That's not allowed. And to her, that just seems cruel. Because surely life is about expressing yourself. Expressing who you feel yourself to be. And that seems arbitrary to her. It seems arbitrary. Why are you allowed to express yourself while I'm expected to repress myself? Now, there's my three examples. They're all made up, but I'm sure you can see that they're all very real. And they've all happened multiple times. And in each case, I'm not saying we can't speak out against the sins. The sin of taking advantage of the poor, or of abortion, or of homosexual behaviour. I'm not saying we can't speak against the specific sins, but I'm saying we are often trying to deal with the difficulty too far downstream. It's like trying to stop the Thames at Windsor. Because having taken in the world's messages about what the desirable life is, there's too powerful a driving force behind those sins. I hope you've also seen that behind sins that maybe shock you might be attitudes that you and I can also have. Well, if Oliver, Ella and Lauren have, it's just got into them and it's, it's the way they live it is the world's attitude to what life is about. It's not surprising if it's too hard to stop those sins. And it's then not surprising if soon Oliver, Ella and Lauren are sitting in the seat of the mockers. In other words, they identify with the people who pour scorn on Christianity those bigoted people, that backward religion, that pie in the sky when you die, when Oliver says, I can have a Range Rover, or Ella says, I can have a successful career, or Lauren says, I can have a wife. I don't want pie in the sky when you die, when I can have those things. So we must recognise how our society is counselling us We can't fully avoid it, but we've got to recognise it. And we must resist that counsel. How? How? Here's the third thing. So we had being trees in the branch. Then we had the character and fruit. Admittedly, I've only looked at that very narrowly, just the pattern in verse 1. But we must move on to this. 
plant food. We need some plant food. And it's in verse 2. We must be a branch in Christ the vine, bearing his fruit. That means we need to be fed. The tree in verse 3 is fed. It's by streams of water. What are these streams of water? What is the plant food? Well, verse 1 tells us about bad counsel to watch out for. Verse 2 tells us about the good counsel we need in its place. Verse 2. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. The good counsel, the plant food for this plant, is the law. Now, at this point, you could be very sceptical about the supposed blessed life. You know, you could caricature it like this. You could say it's rejecting the counsel that says life is about self-fulfillment. Well, actually, self-fulfillment sounds very nice and good. It's about saying no to sin. Well, sin's often pleasurable. It's about not fitting in with the world. We all like to fit in. It all sounds really difficult. And then what are we offered instead? Meditate on God's law. Well, God, you shall not, you shall not. That's pretty miserable, isn't it? All those you shall nots in God's law. We could caricature it like that, but we would have missed something. Because in verse 2, the word law is nowhere near as narrow as just the Ten Commandments. Good though they are, they are good. It isn't as narrow as that. The word law here means instruction from God. In other words, it means God's word. The blessed person, verse 2, delights in the law of God because God has opened his eyes to see wonderful things out of his law. Or more accurately, a wonderful person in God's word. Jesus said, search the scriptures, they point to me. Now, Uh, To get this, we need to remember something from last week. And sorry if you weren't here last week. I hope you'll still get it. We saw that Psalm 1 says, to see who the blessed person is, you've got to think long term. In fact, you've got to think eternally. Because, verse 5, there's such a thing as judgment after death, but there's also such a thing as being with God after death. And we saw last week, who the blessed person is all depends on where they're heading. Actually, it's not about a place we're heading to, it's about a person we're heading to. Jesus. And the way we guard ourselves against society's counsel is to get to know Jesus so we look forward to going to be with him. There's nothing else strong enough to damn that stream in verse 1. There's nothing else strong enough to overcome society's counsel about what the blessed life is than to get to know Jesus. So actually, going to be with him doesn't sound to us like pie in the sky when you die, but like something to be desired. That's why the blessed person, verse 2, delights in God's word. I'll give you an example that I've used before, but... You've probably forgotten. When I was a teenager, there was a couple at my church called Arthur and Lily Way. Arthur and Lily Way, I can't remember how they got to meet each other, but when they were in their 20s, they met, they loved each other, and they got married. 
But there was a problem. It was the early 1940s. And either one or two days after they got married, Arthur Way got sent off to Iraq with the RAF. And that's it. He was gone for years. And they would write to each other. And Lily Way would receive letters from him. And she would treasure them. Because she loved to hear from him. And to hear about him. And as she read them, she looked forward all the time to the day when he would come back. And they'd be together. The letters, she loved to receive them because of him. But they were no substitute for what she was looking forward to, him being back. Now, do you see the picture? There's surely the Christian. There should be us with the one who loved us so much he died for us. And we read his letter to us. We love to hear from him and we love to hear about him. I hope it makes us look forward to the day when he comes back and we will be with him. And so what do we do? What do we do to get like that? What do we do to become like that? Look at verse 2. It says, so we meditate on God's word. We meditate on it. If God's word is going to counter all those messages of the world, if it's going to shape our attitude to what the blessed life is, we need it to seep into us and soak into our thinking, and so we need to meditate on it. Now, children, you might have heard about meditating, but it doesn't mean cross your legs and say om and get a bit detached from the world around you. It's not like that. Christian meditating isn't emptying your mind, it is filling your mind with God's words. That's it, Christian meditating isn't emptying your mind and becoming detached from reality, it's filling your mind with God's word. Think of God's word as food. Now we have all sorts of different types of food. Maybe you watched Wimbledon last month or the month before. And there you see the tennis players, they have these energy gels and Two games have been played, they have a little break, and they take a swig of their energy gel, that's it, it's like Popeye with spinach a bit, it goes straight in and off they go with their energy to play the next game. Now, God's word can sometimes be treated like that. Think of Jesus in the wilderness, just a quick quote of God's word to fight off the devil and on you go. You can treat it like energy gel sometimes, that's fine, but more often, God's word is to be eaten like a cow chewing the cud. Do you know, children, about cows chewing the cud? Then they are chewing on that grass, swallow it down into one of their stomachs, and down it goes. A little while later, back up it comes. Have another chew on it. Then, a little while later, down it goes. A little while later, back up it comes. Have another chew on it. Yes, sounds a bit disgusting to us. But that's the type of eating that is usually best with God's word. You can treat it like an energy gel. Sometimes that's right. But more often it's to be like a cow chewing the cut. In other words, as you read, do you ask yourself questions as you read? Where is Jesus here? What strikes me? What don't I understand? Don't skip over it. There might be treasure there that's worth wrestling over. What am I supposed to do about this? Or take a verse that you found helpful and get it into your memory. By the way, I don't think you can really meditate without a bit of memorising. 
The word for meditate is literally murmur. Because the Jewish people would speak it to themselves softly. When I was at theological college, there was a bit of a culture clash because we had a reading room and the people from other cultures all read aloud. And the people from England found this rather frustrating and distracting. Uh, But the, the word there is to murmur, to say it aloud to yourself. So it gets into your memory. And so you can then carry that verse with you through the day. And like the cow, you can bring it up at certain times. Have a little think over it. Down it goes, because you've got to get on with your work. And a little while later, bring it up. You can have a think about it again. Use it to pray. Here God is speaking to me. What should I say back to him about it? I find often the time that most helps my understanding of God's word is as I speak to him about it. And I find that he's speaking to me again because I see things in his word that I haven't seen. And I particularly see how I should respond as I pray to him about that. Be like a cow chewing the cud on God's word. Get it in and keep bringing it back up to yourself. Day by day. Verse 2, we meditate on it. Why day and night? Why day and night? Is it a rule that you've got to have two quiet times per day? One in the day and one in the night. No, there's no such rule. I don't think there's even such a phrase as quiet time in the Bible. It's a good thing, but there's no rules in the Bible about that. But it is saying, come on, frequently. You need God's word frequently. Do you recognize how often, how continually the world is giving you its messages? Continually it is. Through so many interactions with other people, with so many messages coming into our eyes and into our ears, we are having our view about the desirable life shaped continually. So a little bit of God's word once a week is not got to be sufficient. We've got to take into account how continually we're having our views shaped wrongly and we need to counteract that. It's a bit like we're, we're a violin in a room that, where the violin keeps on getting knocked and the temperature keeps getting changed. What will you have to do with that violin? You have to keep on getting it back into tune. And the world keeps on getting us out of tune with God and out of tune with what the blessed life is. And we need to keep getting ourselves back into tune as we meditate on God's word frequently. First one, blessed is the man. In other words, happy is the person. In other words, here is the desirable life. To have it, you must be in Christ. A branch in him, the vine tree. Are you? To experience it, you must guard against the counsel of the wicked. Are you being realistic about that? And to believe it, to believe that following Jesus is the best life and going to be with him makes everything worthwhile, you must meditate on God's word so you see Jesus is the treasure worth having. We're going to sing. We're going to sing a song that might seem, why this one to start with? It might sit like a funeral hymn. But we're going to sing a song that's about living with our focus on eternity. And a song that tells us 
The journey is worth it because of the person we're journeying to. So let's stand.